Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 15 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. Today, we're honored to learn from Dr. Lisa M. Bowens about her new book entitled African American Readings of Paul Reception, Resistance, and Transformation which provides a historical, theological, and biblical analysis of interpretations of Paul by African Americans from the early 1700s to the mid-20th century and deals with the passages from Paul directing slaves to obey their masters. Tragically, these passages from Paul were used by Christian pastors and churches to endorse and affirm slavery, which further oppressed our black communities in early America. Dr. Lisa M. Bowens is Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. And in this episode, she shares with us ways the African-American community resisted the American church's understanding that Paul endorsed slavery and instead used the Bible to promote liberation and freedom to preach the gospel. She also shares with us bold and radical stories from African-American preachers like John Jay, James W.C. Pennington, Zilpha Elaw, and Jarena Lee. Here's our conversation. I think I wanted to start off with just the awareness that I think a lot of people don't know about the African-American experience and struggle with Paul. And I'll share with you, like, I grew up in a white area in white churches. And I remember being in a high school group studying the book of Ephesians. And we come to that passage in Ephesians where Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. And the way that it was interpreted to us as high school students was like, see, this is where Paul's saying employees obey your boss and that was kind of like how it was interpreted never had any sort of context to like what this meant you know to early in early america to slave owners to african-american community like that was totally not mentioned at all so i grew up very like blind to that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until like i think it was like six or seven years ago where i heard um i don't know if you know propaganda but he has a song called precious puritans And he addresses the problems with pastors quoting ministers who were endorsing or part of the slave trade. And it's a phenomenal poem, uh, rap, uh, that is, it's amazing. That was the first one that kind of shook me. Wow. That made me like, oh, wow. Like, uh, I never really looked at it that way because I kind of, in my tradition and especially Mm -hmm. being in a white church, that was, I, I never really understood that perspective mm-hmm. and so that kind of mm-hmm. shook me yeah and i started to like look at like yeah it doesn't really like man we got to be really careful when we're quoting different theologians like where they're coming from and the impact they've had on other people yeah. especially slavery and mm-hmm. so when i saw your book i was like what an amazing history that you've done almost like an investigative journalist going in to analyze how african americans have understood Paul and these passages. So I wanted to, I guess, to start off by asking you, like, you growing up, like you heard my experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was curious about your experience, like growing up, uh, yeah. hearing these passages from Paul. Yeah. So I grew up Pentecostal, and in our tradition, Paul is very much venerated. I mean, he's preached often the text that he's written are often the text our ministers use when they, you know, do their sermons. So it actually wasn't until I got to seminary where I actually encountered people who had problems with Paul. 
And I remember, I think I was in a class or something, and I remember hearing someone say, I hate Paul. I hate Paul. <laughs> and for me, I was, I, I couldn't understand, like, how could you hate Paul, this great apostle? But as I listened to different people's experiences of how Paul was preached to them and taught to them, I began to kind of understand where that antipathy to Paul, where it came from. And so um, that experience, plus hearing the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother, I would go to different conferences and hear that story. Um, and it's a very powerful, provocative story of, you know, she was a slave and um, her, the slave master's minister would often preach that particular text from Paul to them, slaves obey your masters. And so she tells Howard Thurman this story that she had promised herself once freedom came, she didn't want to hear anything else from Paul. So that experience with seminary, my experience and hearing that story of Howard Thurman's grandmother, it kind of propelled me on this journey, if you will. You said investigative journey, and that's kind of what, what I was doing. I, I wanted to find out how have African-Americans interpreted Paul? Because one of the things when I kept going to these conferences, um, Howard Thurman's grandmother's story seemed to be put forth as the way African-Americans interpreted Paul. And so I really just kind of wanted to investigate and find out, is that really true? Like throughout history, has that been the trajectory? And so I wasn't sure what I would find. And so I was quite surprised to find that more often than not, African-Americans viewed Paul really positively. They utilized his work, his writings to protest injustice, to protest racism, to protest slavery. Um, African-American women used him to even sanction their call to preach. So it was really an exciting journey for me. Um, I learned a lot about people that I had never heard of before doing this research. And it was yeah, it was an interesting experience just to see how African-Americans throughout these centuries interpret Paul. I start from the 1700s and my original intent was to work all the way to the present, but there was too much material, <laughs> too many interpreters. <laughs> so I had to kind of narrow it down from the 1700s and I stopped in the mid 20th century. And even with that, there are many interpreters that I ended up, you know, not covering and sources that I didn't cover. But I hope that this book is kind of like an introduction so that um, maybe it will spur other people to do more research in this field, because I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, there are many more voices to be heard, many more texts to be analyzed. So I hope that it's it's a beginning of a conversation. <laughs> I hope. It's fantastic. And um, you mentioned attending conferences and hearing the, the quote from Nancy Ambrose. Yeah. And yeah. that was actually, I, I just discovered that right after George Floyd was killed. And I was like, I need mm -hmm. to be very intentional about learning about the black experience in America. Yeah. And yeah. I was looking at my library and unfortunately my library is filled with a lot of authors who are white, white theologians. Mm -hmm. And so I began like searching black theologians, African-American theologians and Howard Thurman came up. I was like, yeah. oh, I need to read Howard Thurman. So I ordered Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Distant Heart Herited. Yeah, it's a great and book. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. And I was like looking him up on Wikipedia and like looking up YouTube videos with him. 
And right, right in the very beginning of one of one of his chapters, he talks about his grandmother and mm-hmm. how she couldn't read. And so first of all, it's like light went on, like, of course, like literacy was not huge. Like it was very, very hard for anybody to learn uh, how to read, especially slaves mm-hmm. and maybe even forbidden. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And so, so they had to rely on pastors and sometimes these pastors were endorsing slavery, like quoting Paul, right? They're hearing passages from their slave owners. Like, look, you have to listen to me because of God wants you to listen to me. And here's the passage. And so, and so when I heard that, it was almost like I was shook. I was like, well, I'm like, I'm like, if I was in that situation, I feel the same way. And in fact, I probably want to just disregard the Bible entirely because that's God's word. God's telling these people that this is the way you should treat me. I don't want to have anything to do with that God. So I I was, it shook me. Mm -hmm. And so that set me on this journey, which led me to your book where Mm -hmm. I wanted to like, I'm like, okay, I want to really understand this because I feel that if I was in that position, I'd be very angry at God and I'd be very angry at these letters from Paul. Yeah. 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 I think um, what you, what you raised there is so important because um, when you when you read Nancy Ambrose, you hear her story through Howard Thurman, you do get it, right? You're, you're like, I totally understand why she would dismiss Paul. Um, and the thing about that is that along with her story, you have all these other stories too, which I think kind of point to the complex nature of what I call African-American her, Pauline hermeneutics, where you have people like Nancy Ambrose who you know, reject Paul. And I talk about two of those people in my book, Howard Thurman, of course, and then Albert Clay. But then for the most part, you have African-Americans who reject that Paul that they've been given by white interpreters. They reject that Paul and they say, that is not the Paul that we know. That is not the Paul that proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles. And so in a sense, I talk about African-American Pauline hermeneutics as this reclamation hermeneutic, like they are reclaiming Paul and um, allowing his voice to help them shape their own voice in protesting slavery and injustice and oppression. So and then I say would also say, like in coupling with that, they also have these profound experiences with God themselves, which I think is a an important part of how they come to interpret Paul. They have these, um, like many of these interpreters have these extraordinary conversion experiences. They have these extraordinary supernatural encounters with God. And in that sense, they experience, they believe they experience the same God that Paul experienced on the Damascus Road. And so, yeah, and these experiences help shape how they see Paul. And so I think when you think about these interpreters, um, I talk about in the book, this dialectic, right? They're bringing their experiences to the text, but they're also allowing the text to interpret their experiences. So not just their supernatural experiences, but also the experiences of um, enslavement and um, the things they're experiencing in larger society, racism. And those experiences, along with these powerful encounters with God, really help shape how they see Paul and how they interpret his letters. 
it's beautiful, it's bold, it's radical, and it reminds me of um, like the early reformers, like the Luthers, that rejected mm -hmm. certain interpretations as no, that's not how we read this text. <laughs> you know, yeah. Luther was very was very bold and very radical. Like, let's even get rid of the Book of James, Luther said. But like, I think yeah. I see the same thing here. Like, you have these um, African Americans who were slaves now reading this text and rejecting what they're being told by even the pastoral community and saying that's yeah. not how we see this. Yeah. Um, and that's a very radical idea. I mean, they're like very radical theologians to like go against the church in America or that was right. preaching this. I right. love that. Yeah, they they were radical. You're right. They were radical. They were bold. They were fearless. They were tenacious. All of those adjectives, right? And especially when you think about the times in which they lived. Um, and you had mentioned earlier about um, African Americans being forbidden to learn to read. And one of the reasons that was the case, you know, they had laws in place forbidding slaves to, to be taught how to read because literacy opens the opens the door to being able to interpret scripture for yourself. So if I can control your access to scripture, I can tell you what I want you to think scripture says, right? I can interpret it to you and you can't really counter that. But if you're able to read, then you can go into scripture yourself and see what God says about you. And so you'll see in the book, some um, like Jupiter Hammond, for example, now, he was taught to read because his owners needed his help in their business, but he also encouraged other African-Americans to learn to read. And when you read his essays, one of the reasons why he says you need to know how to read so you can read the Bible for yourself. And so if they can read the Bible for themselves, they can see that there are other passages in Scripture then slave owners obey your masters. They can see that they are created in the image of God. They can see that God has chosen them. God has called them. So this restriction of literacy plays a huge part in kind of um, slaveocracy's recognition that literacy and liberation go hand in hand. Um, and you get a real sense of that with John Jay's story. Um, the enslaved African-American whom God taught to read. He had this supernatural encounter where he, where God sends an angel, teaches him how, teaches him how to read. Um, it's a powerful story. Um, long story short, he gets, he learns how to read and that ends up being his way to liberation, right? They free him and he goes around the world proclaiming the gospel. So there you see like a real concrete example of the connection between literacy and liberation. But I think you see it, you know, as an undercurrent in the other stories as well, in terms of how African-Americans were restricted, um, in terms of learning how to read, and then how when they do know how to read, how they use it to argue for their freedom. They use scripture, even Paul's script, Pauline scripture to, to say, you know, um, to proclaim justice, to proclaim liberation, freedom, and to counter um, white accounts of of scripture. Yeah, I see like this amazing parallel. Like you're talking about like how literacy has led to liberation. And I see this total mm -hmm. parallel with like Luther wanting to take the Bible, right? And make yeah. it available into the yeah. regular languages. Like I see exactly. that similarity. It's like the same thing. It's like 
let yeah. it out to the masses, let people read this. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Yes. So it shows how scripture is a liberating, a liberating force, I think. And so when you see how these interpreters, they know how to read scripture and they take up scripture's voice to give voice to their own struggle, right? To give voice to their own, uh, their own struggle for justice and liberation. And it is, it's beautiful. It's powerful. It's radical. Like you were saying earlier. And it just shows the power, I think, of the gospel to be a force for justice and liberation. It shows the gospel's power in that. One thing I also really um, love is that you were showcasing all these dynamic women pastors and leaders in the church early on. And that's sometimes we, we, we miss that. We see that like, like trying to find women leaders uh, sometimes mm-hmm. is like dismissed in a lot. Of, like I look at so many different traditions. And it's so beautiful that you like showing people um, like Julia Foote. Uh, yeah. You talk about Jarena Lee, uh, Lee and Zilpha Ela. Like yeah. those are beautiful stories. And I, when I was reading, I was like, I was like, wow. I said, is Paul also aside from the passages talking about slavery? Mm-hmm. He also addressed like women be silent in the church mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. right and listen to your governing authorities. So like. One, two, three, Paul, you're out. Like, I can <laughs> yes. see why a lot of black women would be like, Paul, I'm done with you because right. you're telling me to be silent too. You're telling me not to teach yeah. in the church. And so I'm like, I'm like thinking, wow, it's amazing to see these like strong black women like preaching the gospel and then just like becoming like Paul, passionate. I'm going to go into the communities. I think it was it, was it Zilpha that actually went to the South? Yes. Yes. Yeah, like that was unbelievable. Like to put her life at risk mm-hmm. to preach the gospel. So yeah. can you talk about like like the black woman's experience because yeah. they had to conflict with not only the slavery issue but also Paul's mentions about not being able to preach. Right. Yeah. So these are really fascinating women. So when I was doing the research for for this book and just reading about these women's reading their stories, they're just so amazing. And when you think about the times in which they lived, they lived in a time when it was forbidden for women to really speak publicly, much less African-American Black women to speak. So they are, uh, you know, facing issues of race, but also gender. And so um, when you read their stories, you see that they also have these really profound divine encounters with God, these conversion experiences, and then their call experiences are so supernatural. And these experiences transform them in really profound ways. And um, as you read their stories, you also see that they're kind of hesitant when they get the call to preach. And they're hesitant on a number of you know reasons. One, they're women and um, and another, they feel like they don't have enough education to go forth. But then God confirms to them God's call and they go forth and do it. And what you lift up about women, so they face a lot of opposition, you know, not just from because of their race, but because of their gender in preaching the gospel. And they actually took on Paul's words of women being silent. Zilpha talks about it in terms of um, that particular passage that Paul writes 
is for a church, right? She, she kind of breaks it down and she's like, he's talking to a church because of particular things that were going on in that church. He's not talking to the church, she says. And so she takes that passage head on and um, exegetes it, if you will, by looking at the historical context. Because she says, if you look at the historical context in which Paul is writing this, there are other women in ministry with Paul. You know, she talks about Priscilla and she talks about Phoebe and she talks about um, the women in Corinth who are prophesying. But she says, if you look at the context, there's no way Paul is advocating women be silent. Um, for all women in all time, because even in his own time, he didn't have that happening. So you have these women who have these profound encounters with God, but they're also very much engaged with the context of scripture. So they're looking at the um, historical context. When you look at Jarena Lee, she also talks about Mary being the first preacher because she says, Paul says, the centrality of the gospel is a resurrection. Who was the first to proclaim the resurrection? Mary. <laughs> and so she comes at that passage, you know, through that through that lens and says, Mary proclaimed what Paul said was central to the gospel. So how can you now use Paul to kind of denote silence for women? So you have these really ingenious um, women who are um, talking about proclaiming the gospel, using Paul to confirm their call you know, taking up his voice to confirm their call and saying, if you even look at our ministry, lives are being changed by our proclamation of the gospel. This is further evidence that in a way we are continuing what Paul has begun. And so they, in a sense, kind of merge their voices with Paul's voice, which, you know, for us, you're like, how could you do that? But they do it in such a powerful and um, really amazing way. And they're not just, I think sometimes people think of African-Americans often just talk about experience. Now, experience is central to these interpreters' lives. But as I said, they're also looking at the historical context of the scripture and bringing all of that into conversation. So, yeah, so I talk about a number of women in the book. Jarena Lee, Dilpa Elaw, Julia Foote, Maria Stewart, because all of these women are doing um, profound work in the times in which they live. And they, and they, now they do suffer a lot because of this. And they also talk about that in the autobiography. They face a lot of opposition. Um, a lot of times their family members are not very supportive because they feel like you're not, you know, you're not um, fulfilling the female role of society. You're supposed to stay home, take care of your family. But you have these women who are traveling around the country, like, you know, doing um, things that were, considered only male, male roles. So yeah, these are quite amazing women. Yeah. <laughs> They're like movers and shakers, people that are super inspiring. Like I'm like excited, like I want to read their autobiographies, read <laughs> yes. books about them because it's so yes. fascinating, especially at that time. Like I keep trying to put myself in that time right. when women were dismissed, African-American women especially were dismissed. Yeah. And having to deal with so much hate and racism and yet finding this boldness to go. And, and I was like, they're like Zilpha goes, like she's a free woman and she goes into the South. Like, why would you go to the South? And, but she's so 
passionate about preaching the gospel yeah. and, and is very much appalled at going into these dangerous areas yeah. and willing to be jailed, willing to die for her faith. Like I, I sit there and I'm like, I look at my life and I'm like, oh my gosh, like yeah, she, know, look yeah. at she is doing, like how mm-hmm. bold she is for the faith. Yeah, I, I know when I read that part of her story, I have to say, sometimes when I read these interpreters work, like chills, go, they go down my spine because I'm like, oh, my goodness. And she she kind of talks about that in her autobiography. She goes to these slave states and she is kind of nervous about it. Right. Because she knows what the laws of that time were in these slave states. She could be captured. She could be even though she was born free, she could be enslaved. But at the same time, she knows that this is what God has called her to do. And so even feeling a little bit of, you know, trepidation, she still goes forward and does it. And then she talks about how God really blesses her ministry there. And, um, she's preaching to in the enslaved, but she's also preaching to slaveholders, which is amazing in itself as well. And, um, she talks about how the gospel goes forth and people are, even the slaveholders, she says, are amazed to see her, you know, preaching and proclaiming the gospel. So, yes, yeah, she was fearless. Um, and for many of these interpreters, they believe this is what God had called them to do. And they were not going to back down no matter the cost, even if it cost them their life. Right. I think about David Walker, who, you know, in his appeal he doesn't mince any words about America, right? He he calls America out on its hypocrisy. You send missionaries overseas, and yet you are treating um, those within your borders horrifically. And then at, at the end of his appeal, he realizes that, you know, because of his bold stance, he may get killed. And um, he utilizes Paul, the Paul's farewell discourse to kind of shape and form his own farewell discourse. You know, um, I'm ready to be offered up. And so you think about his life and the life of so many of these interpreters, they were willing to die for liberation. They were willing to die for freedom for others. And so I think it's, you know, it's a, these interpreters inspire me as well. Like how, how can I be more faithful in my life? You know, and, and they, they face so, so much, um, turmoil, so much, um, opposition, and yet they persevere. So I, I hope that readers will get a sense of inspiration from these interpreters' lives, get a sense of the power of God to sustain us in moments when we think we can't be sustained. Yeah. So I, I hope, I hope that comes through in, in the book. I am totally inspired to like, continue to read and to read these biographies because it is super powerful and um like just challenges us um as christians like what are we doing to be bold um, like these women like these men um who were uh facing so much discrimination so much racism and um and their own the way that they were able to take these texts and study them analyze them as theologians like brilliant i mean I just think about the boldness to do that, to like, I mean, just questioning your own faith tradition is hard, right? Right, When you start to see and uncover things that you don't like about your religious tradition, that's hard to do because you start to doubt things. And for them to not only question it, but then like be bold enough to go and 
challenge the government, challenge pastors, challenge everybody um, on yeah, these on these yeah. guys. It's like it's like phenomenal to me, and I'm like I'm like oh, I have so much to learn from these amazing men and women. And I, yeah, I want to ask too. you too, like me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to ask you like I mentioned in the beginning that it's really sad to see the white church and these white ministers. I think of the George Whitfields. I think of the John Newtons who were. Uh, slave owners who endorse slavery. And these are people who are supposed to be men of God, women of God, who yeah. that idol and, and also endorsed that, that teaching mm-hmm. that slavery was okay. Yeah, and yeah. how, like, how do we kind of reconcile kind of, you have also these Christian men and women, African Americans who were now not only going against culture, but having to go against the church. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the, when you look at the history, there's so many conversations going on at this time. And one of the things that's happening is in order to justify slavery, many of these white ministers, white pastors were, they try to describe slavery as a rescue, right? We are actually rescuing Africans from their native country, their native land, bringing them to this Christian nation so they can receive the gospel, right? So that's one part of the conversation that's going on during this time. And so you have people like Lemuel Haynes, you have people like Pennington, Frederick Douglass, David Walker, you have all of these interpreters, African-American interpreters going against that, right? You know, um, Pennington just comes out and says, God doesn't have to enslave us to give us the gospel. This argument is ludicrous. So you have this conversation going on where white Christianity, unfortunately, was willing to try to justify the unjustifiable and using scripture to do it. But at the same time, you have these African-American interpreters saying, no, this is not of God. And you have people like Lemuel Haynes who comes out and says, actually, this is sin. This type of action. This is sin. And that's a move that many white interpreters during this time would not make. So you're right. They were bold in countering this notion that um, slavery was a blessing. And it was not only in the churches, it was in the media, if you would call the social media of that time. It was in the newspapers. I mean, it was a prevalent notion that slavery was actually a blessing to African-Americans. So you have African-Americans pushing back against that and saying, no, this is evil. This is sin. So you have that conversation going on um, during this time as well about the nature of slavery and how to talk about slavery. Right. So you have the South trying to paint this beautiful, rosy picture of slaveocracy. But then you have people like Pennington, Harriet Jacobs and others who escaped the North. And they begin telling the story of, of what's actually happening during slavery and trying to open up the eyes of people in the North to what really is happening in the South. And um, so many of the slaves who escaped, their stories become evident that what's happening in the South is not right and is not of God. So there's a lot of conversation going on in this time around slavery and what slavery means and what it is. Yeah. And I, I love how you mentioned Lemuel Hames about 
addressing it as sin. Like this okay. is a sin. And I think I remember um, one of the arguments was around um, husbands loving your wives and the importance for yeah. families to be together. Yeah. And what a talk about theology yeah. and, and bringing things yeah. together, like arguing against slavery. Like look how slavery is dividing families. And if you're yeah. truly a Christian family, husband and yeah. wives, families need to be staying together. Yes, yes. So you're, you're mentioning one of the petitions. So when I did mm. research for this book, um, one of the things I start with is looking at enslaved petitions. So as early as 1774, we have um, it's this petition written by enslaved Africans to the Massachusetts government to argue for their freedom. And one of the arguments, as you rightly point out, is Paul's words of husbands love your wives, children obey your parents. And so they quote Paul in this petition and they say, how can we follow the words of scripture when you're separating our families? And, you know, there's no way our the husbands can love their wives and the children can obey their parents because our families are taken from us. And so they make this really ingenious argument in this petition to argue for their freedom and liberation. And then they talk about, they also quote Hebrews, let, let brotherly love continue. And they say, how can brotherly love continue when you are enslaving us? The two are mutually exclusive. So you have these um, African-Americans who are um, using Paul and government documents to argue for their freedom. In another petition from 1779, you have the writers um, quoting Acts 1726, where Paul says, God has made of one blood all the nations of the earth and saying, you know, we are all one humanity. We're one humanity. So no race has the privilege or the right to enslave another another human being. So um, you have these really um, fascinating sophisticated arguments and these legal documents, if you will, by African-Americans arguing for their liberation and their freedom. Do you happen to know um, how the the white church, like white pastors handled that? Because this, this, was a, this was a case made to the government and I love they're using theological language, using Paul, the, yeah. the person that they're using to endorse slavery, they're using that same Paul to argue like this is why we should be free yeah, yeah. and in fact slavery is a sin you're separating families um you're not even following the mandate to love our neighbor um yeah. how do you happen to know like how the the white churches the white pastors at the time were kind of seeing these arguments did they did they, do you know how they addressed them yeah actually i do not know that mike that's a good question i mean i know the outcome the petition was denied in both cases, but I don't know did white churches respond or anything like that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Like I still, so I struggle with this now. Like, like it's hard for me now to like read some of these theologians. Yeah. With the same, because I'm now I, it's colored. It's a colored lens. Like, right. You're talking yeah. about love. You're talking about love here, theologian, but mm-hmm. yet you are not showing this love in your own life. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think what you are pointing to you see these African-American interpreters feeling the same way, right? You are proclaiming Christianity and yet your actions do not correspond with what you're proclaiming that you are. 
And even in Harriet Jacobs' story, she talks about her mistress, how her mistress was kind to her, taught her how to read and write. And she had hoped that her mistress would free her, right? And then when her mistress passes away, the will is read and she doesn't free Harriet. And she says, I guess she didn't see me as her neighbor. You know, and that's such a powerful line there because she says, my mistress taught me the precepts of God, but yet she didn't see me as her neighbor. So there's this, there's this, um, irony, sad irony, if you will, that you have, um, slave owners who did proclaim Christianity. They're the teaching the enslaved, the precepts of God, but yet there's something there that doesn't allow them to see African American people as equal to them. There's this deep-seated belief in African American inferiority. And so, and I think, I mean, and Harriet Jacobs just says it so powerfully there. She didn't see me as her neighbor. And kind of like what you were saying just a few minutes ago about, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. That was not the way they viewed African Americans. You're not my neighbor. I'm superior to you, right? And in many instances, I don't think we've talked about it yet here, but, you know, there's also this other part of the conversation. Are African-Americans even human? So you have that part of the conversation, too, where African-Americans were considered not human. And if they are human, then they're not of the same, you know, humanity as us. So there's this whole conversation going on around the time, too, even if African-Americans have souls. So when you think about all of these different elements to the discussion that's happening. And then you have these interpreters who are countering every one of these parts of the argument. They're countering the we do not have souls argument. They're countering um, the argument that we're not human. Of course, we're human. We have these divine encounters with God that affirms our humanity, that affirms that we're created in the image of God. You know, so they are they are very much involved and aware of all of these elements of slaveocracy and slaveocracy's um, repeated attempt to deny their humanity. What you just said, like the slaveocracy, of the the way that the people at the time were viewing African Americans as not human, not having a soul, uh, being treated as animals, like again, all this stuff. Like I feel so bad for the African Americans who are like they had all these reasons to not want to study the Bible. There's all these yeah. reasons because you have you have all this surrounding it. You have this new uh what you talked about the counter creation mm-hmm. approach. And yeah. these are to me I'm like it's like stacking argument against arguments against arguments about why if I was African American at the time, I would have no desire to read this book mm-hmm. because of what it's mm-hmm. done to society, what is how it's done to treat how they're being how I'm being looked at because they're yeah. using this book as their guide. And uh, this is why I'm like, I feel like I would be like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to have anything (laughs) to do with that book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing to is the, um, the profound, how can I say this? The profound um, determination of African-Americans that in the midst of all of this, we are not, they're saying we are not going to let you interpret this book for us. 
we are not going to let you tell us who God is. Um, and I think part of this, I'm trying to think of the word. I'm, I'm losing my the word here, what I want to say. But I think it's part partly because of their experiences with God, right? These amazing encounters that where God meets them. And I think about, I'm thinking about the, like the enslaved conversion narrative that I talk about in the book where Morty is plowing a field and God just comes to him, right? And then you have another account talk about where um, the, the narrator is in a blackberry patch and God comes to the narrator. They have these really amazing experiences with God. And I, I call them these divine interruptions of the demonic in which these encounters is so transformative for them that it helps them to see the power of the gospel, helps them to see the power of scripture, helps them to see that this is God's sacred word to us and that we are not going to allow how others are interpreting this to dehumanize us, to stand as the final word for our lives. And so when you read these interpreters and how they are reclaiming Paul and they are merging their voices with Paul, you see how they're, they are saying God has created us in God's image. God has called us. God has, um, God loves us. And I think the fact that they do it in the context in which they live is so amazing. And the fact that they keep doing it, right? They are persistent in the way they're reading scripture. They are persistent in the way they are understanding God's call upon their lives. I don't know if there's that helpful or. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because all this speaks to like the dynamic nature of scripture and just how God used. Um, this tragic period to shake up the church and interpretation yeah. of the Bible, because like their words, their thoughts on these texts, like we're talking about it today. Like yeah. they probably had no idea, like the impact their theology has on our current church and the way that we read their Bible today is because of their work. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I'm so, I want to do more research in this area. These Interpreters are so fascinating to me. Um, the bold stances that they took, their repeated assertion of their humanity. So I think I'm thinking about like Pennington, for example, when he begins his, um, his autobiography, he talks about, you know, just the horrors of slavery and he calls out those who say, Oh, but there are kind Christian masters, right? And he calls out and he says, yeah, we have kind Christian masters. What is that to us? Like, what advantage is that? Because <laughs> he's because he, he says exactly what we're talking about. These Christian masters are still raping the women. They're still separating our families. They're still, you know, engaging in these horrific acts. What does that matter? And then he talks about how um, African-Americans are listed in the same catalog as animals, right? Gives that list. And so when you read his autobiography, you see how he details the horrors of slavery. But then there's a part of his autobiography when he's, when he 
sends a letter to his parents after he escapes. He sends a letter to his parents and he tells them, I don't want you. I know there are people who are preaching that the gospel is for slavery, but I don't want you to listen to them because the gospel, he says, is anti-sin and it's also anti-slavery. So there's a sense that he understands what the gospel is about and what the gospel is about, that these white interpreters of slave ministers, that's not the gospel, he says, you know, he's encouraging his parents. Don't listen to them. The gospel is anti-sin and anti-slavery. So there's this sense that they understand what the true gospel entails. And they're, they're making this distinction between the true gospel and the false gospel. And you see it even in Frederick Douglass, when Frederick Douglass makes a distinction between slaveholding Christianity, he says, and the Christianity of Christ. And he makes that distinction and says, slaveholding Christianity and Christianity of Christ are two different things. And the slaveholding Christianity is what's being practiced in the South. It's not the Christianity of Christ. So you see this distinction being made repeatedly by these interpreters between, you know, these two di very different understandings of what the gospel is. And those words from Pennington, like if Pennington was on Twitter, it'd be like retweet, 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 uh, <laughs> on fire. He's on yeah. fire. Uh, I mean, all these writers exactly. are just on fire. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> for those that are like me, like very curious and like wanting to read more, dig into these autobiographies, what would you say like a good place to start? Well, there's two volumes edited by Yuval Taylor, and the volumes are called I Was Born a Slave. There's two volumes, and both of those volumes are filled with enslaved narratives. And I use um, those volumes in my book. So if you want to just read the autobiographies, that's that's one of the first places I would go. Yeah. And then and, there's and, another. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. There's another compilation of the women autobiographies by William Andrews um, that has Dilpa Elaw, Julia Foote, and Jarena Lee in it. Oh. I have to look up for a minute. So he has all the, all three of their autobiographies in one place. Yeah, that those are the ones I'm really curious about because, like we were talking about, like how they had to deal with also dealing with Paul and being silent in the church and, and also having to deal with the family and putting their lives at risk. Like yeah. those are the ones that are, are, all of them sound interesting, but I want to almost start with those ones because those ones are so bold. Yes. Yes. So it's called sisters of the spirit. Oh, three, three black women's autobiographies of the 19th century. When you were, um, before we go, as you were like reading all these um, autobiographies and biographies and histories, I kind of imagine that some of this stuff is very traumatized, like what you're reading as they, they're talking about their encounters with slavery. And I can imagine like other people that are just starting to encounter these texts might be triggered. So do you have any like words of like kind of the, the space to be in before you begin to read these texts? Wow, that's a good question. So I have to admit there were times I had to step away as I was doing the research just to kind of um, get a break. Um, because when you read their stories, it's really hard. I mean, things they endured is, is really difficult to to read. Um, I took, it may, you may need to take some time away. 
I often talked about it with my family, kind of like decompressed, kind of shared what I was reading, just kind of, you know, had a conversation with them to kind of help me deal with the different things I was reading. So I think it's important when you read these texts to be prepared that they will be challenging um, and they will be difficult to read. But at the same time, I think it's necessary that we read them. It's important that these stories are not um, lost or forgotten. Another thing that may help is journaling. Journaling as you read these stories, um, writing down how they make you feel. How would you respond if you were in this person's shoes? Like, there are different ways you can do it, but I think journaling may be a good way to kind of walk through the emotions you may feel as you read these texts because they 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 are very difficult at, at moments they really are and i think all that like helps us build empathy like it helps us put us in those shoes which makes everything that they've done so much more powerful yeah. um, the way that they read scripture preach scripture understanding where they're coming from like just shines a light on just the the beauty the determination their radical preaching, like it's such beautiful, such beautiful stories. And um, I want to thank you for like compiling these stories into a volume. And um, I hope in the future you're able to even edit like a compilation of like all your favorite stories oh, into one yeah. volume because that, that would be fantastic too. Um, That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> you should, <laughs> you should, because like, because you're mentioning all these like great stories that are in different volumes and like. Be able to mm-hmm. hand select, like, let's grab that one for this reason and this mm-hmm. one for that reason. And then you even like sharing a little commentary on like how to read this text and things to look for. Um, Cause all I know is like what you've already done is like helping us build empathy and understand how Paul mm-hmm. is understood. And yeah. like I said, like it took me what until I was mid thirties before mm-hmm. I actually understood a little bit of the black experience with Paul where yeah. I can actually like, I was like, what? Like, like yeah. I said, going back to the very beginning, like when I was in church, like Ephesians, first Corinthians, like when those passages came up, oh, that's about boss and employee relationship, a boy or a boss. Right. Okay. I get right. it. That yeah. that was my, that was all I understood. And then, like I said, encountering Howard Thurman, encountering propaganda, like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, like what is wrong with me? Like, it's almost like the eyes are opened up and I was like, I had never saw this before. But it's like it's book like it's books like your research that helps to shine a light to like, look, this is whole other world that you're not seeing if you're not part of this story. Like, so Mm -hmm. so come on in, come on in, come come look, come look at this uh, how this story relates to how we read our Bibles. Yeah, I hope I hope the book will will do exactly what you're saying, Mike. I hope that so many of these voices are so important. And I hope that the book shines a light on their voices and on the way, again, I go back to how God meets us in times which are often so horrific. Um, But these interpreters testify again and again how God met them and how scripture was God's word for them. Um, Even in the midst of people trying to take scripture away from them or use it to harm them, they saw life and power. They saw God's love in scripture. And so I hope that people will get a sense of um, how important um, scripture was to these interpreters. 
the context in which they lived and moved and how they were able to weave scripture into their stories and how the scripture helped shape their own stories. Um, yeah, so one of the things I wanted to do in the book was really just allow these voices to be heard in their own words, which is a, why a lot of times I, I cite a lot of primary text because I wanted people to hear their voices because I think they have so much to teach us and so much to tell us. And so I try to highlight their voices as much as much as I can. We did a phenomenal job, a beautiful job. So thank you, uh, Dr. Bowens, for, oh, for your book you. and also for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Lisa M. Bowens from Princeton University about her new book entitled African American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. I thoroughly enjoyed learning from her on the ways African Americans were empowered by Paul to pursue liberation and the ways they fought the American church for advocating slavery. I walked away inspired to learn more from these brilliant and courageous abolitionists and preachers. So today's conversation leads us to this episode's question. Dr. Bowen shares the tragic ways the American church and pastors use the Bible to endorse and affirm slavery. What are other dangerous ways the church uses the Bible to hurt marginalized groups? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. Next week, we're going to learn from Mako Fujimura about his new book entitled Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, where he shares ways that faith and spirituality impacts art and how art can inform our spirituality. Mako is a theologian, poet, and brilliant artist, and I know you're going to love hearing his perspective on art and faith. Oh, and if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care, and we'll chat more next time.